Well, we are in Isaiah 63. Seems like we've been out of the text for a little bit. So, well, why don't you stand and we'll read the word of God together. Isaiah 63. If you read ahead, you probably were making some correlations elsewhere in the word. Isaiah the prophet, in this, um, this vision, this oracle, he says, Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. I looked, but there was none or no one to help, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury, it sustained me. I have trodden down the people in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. Isaiah responds to this and says, I will, I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has bestowed on them according to his mercies, according to the multitude of his loving kindness. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not lie. So he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them, and he bore them and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit, so he turned himself against them as an enemy, and he fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old, Moses and his people saying, Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit within them? who led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the deep as a horse in the wilderness that they might not stumble. As a beast goes down into the valley and the spirit of the Lord causes him to rest, so you led your people to make yourself a glorious name. Look down from heaven and see from your habitation, holy and glorious, where are your zeal and your strength? The yearning of your heart and the mercies toward me, are they restrained? Doubtless you are our father. Though Abraham was ignorant of us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer. From everlasting is your name. O Lord, why have you made us stray from your ways and harden our heart from your, from your fear? Return for your servant's sake, the tribes of your inheritance. Your holy people have possessed it but a little while. Our adversaries have trodden down your sanctuary. We have become like those of old, over whom you never ruled, those who were never called by your name. Father, as always, Lord, regardless of where we are in your word, we thank you for it. And Lord, I thank you for this oracle. I thank you for Isaiah's response to it. And I pray that you'd teach us tonight from it. And as we explore other scriptures, Lord, that we might even look forward to it um, in, a, in a, a righteous manner. And Lord, we pray that you'd continue to be with Ron and Jan. Lord, we want 
we desire that Ron would be back on his feet and feeling strong, Lord, and doing well. We pray, Lord, that you would touch his heart, that you would give him strength, and uh, Lord, that you would just encourage them. Keep them close to you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. So if you didn't read ahead, you may not have been expecting that. (laughs) Yeah, Isaiah 63, especially that first part. Yeah. I um, was listening to um, uh, Cairo in my car, the John Curley show. You guys ever listened to any of Cairo? It's not a Christian program by any means. But John Curley claims to be a believer. I don't know what kind of a believer, but he was trying to make some kind of defense for the resurrection and some kind of apologetic. And, um, and in his apologetic, he had said that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and anger and unforgiveness. And the God of the New Testament is loving and gracious and forgiving. And um, I wanted to call in and, uh, and say, well, actually, John, the, the New Testament is bloodier than the Old Testament. And, and it's true. Uh, but, you know, most people, I don't know how they, in their Bible reading, end up avoiding uh, the righteousness of God throughout the scriptures. Uh, but it's everywhere present, just like God. <laughs> and uh, and it's, it's not that God is angry. Uh, it's that God is righteous. He's just. So anyway, we see that come out in the text. But the fulfillment of this text, as we'll see, wasn't in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. It's in the New Testament to come, as it were. So let's look at it. So it begins, Isaiah says, Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. And the response is, I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. So coming from the south, Basra, uh, a word that means fortress, uh, this is the, the capital uh, city of Edom, okay, southeast of the Dead Sea, about 25 miles, uh, which is today is the country of Jordan. Okay? Edom was the name, if you'll remember, the name of Jacob's uh, brother, Esau, right? Who settled in that area, and then that area was called Edom. Uh, Esau means red, which is interesting because the... Uh, that area, the, 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 the sandstone down there is, is red. Uh, after the Greeks conquered the region, they named the city Petra, which means rock. So they were very creative when they named the city. Uh, uh, the city itself is, most of it is carved out of the canyon walls, which, uh, you know, sandstone is softer, so they carved it. Uh, today, the, the ancient city is a tourist site. I know some of you have been there. Raise your hand if you've been to to Petra. Oh, just a couple of you. Oh, I didn't get to go when I was in Israel. I wish I had. Uh, but for those that, that haven't been there, I'll, I'll give you a virtual tour. How's that? Yeah. Um, the, the, its beauty and the wonder of the architecture and all that uh, is just well-preserved. It's really an oasis in the desert. It still has... Um, the, the natural, not natural, the aqueducts that were carved into the walls, um, you know, two, three thousand years ago, as far back as the Nubatian people, the original people that were there, and some of them still function. Uh, they still bring in water from the surrounding area. And uh, it truly is a fortress, not just from the desert, the heat, and the sun, but from an invader. It's just a fascinating place. So here are some 
This is the, uh, the exterior of the city. Um, if you like deserts, it's very beautiful. It's a beautiful desert, but not exactly welcoming if you don't have lots of shade and lots of water, right? Uh, it looks like a scene from, from the movie Dune. In fact, they might have got it from there, okay? Um, and, uh, and then as you approach the city, the exterior, you find these kinds of dwellings carved into uh, the rock. And you know, rock stays very cool compared to other um, structures. And then here, of course, you see the Grecian influence, the amphitheater, thanks to Alexander the Great. Hellenism was very effective. And then you see a different form of architecture as you get into the more of the interior. And then the special place is this, um, this slot canyon. I believe it's called the Wadi Musa. Um, and this is how you travel to the, the interior of the city. If you've ever been to Utah or Southern California, they have tons of slot canyons. And some of them are uh, intimidating with how um, tall the canyon walls are. Some of them are so deep and the canyon's so narrow and windy you can't see out. Um, so we'd, we'd uh, hike some with my family uh, when we did our trip around the U.S. Uh, but this is the one to the interior. And there, as you come to the, uh, the inside, you see the treasury of Petra. If you've seen Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, um, that wasn't CGI. Uh, that's a real, uh, real city. And then you come out of there, and, and then you have that in the wall. And that's from up high. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. I'm not sure what exactly that structure there is. It's not the treasury. But... Um, yeah, this, this type of architecture and, and stuff is just littered um, in the, um, the, the city there. So not a bad place to live, I don't think, in the ancient city uh, or in, in the ancient world. And I believe um, if Jeremiah and uh, some other indications in Scripture, uh, if I understand them correctly, it might be used again in the future by Israel uh, for a special purpose. And we'll talk about that a little bit. So... That's Basra. Let's get back to our text. Now, when you look at uh, oftentimes the prophets, uh, you may wonder, where are they? Or from, from what, uh, what is their position from their, that they're speaking? Well, as a general rule, especially with Isaiah, uh, he, he spoke as if he was standing in the capital city, Jerusalem. Okay? And here in this oracle, Isaiah is in Jerusalem as though he were on the city wall as a watchman, and he's looking to the south toward Basra uh, and, and, and keeping an eye on the city. And as he watches, he sees this individual from a distance at first, as it seems he's traveling uh, northward from the south, and it says that he's traveling in the greatness of his strength. I don't know exactly what that looks like. Is he on a a horse. I imagine that he probably is on a horse. We'll look at that a little bit later. Um, but what we have from his perspective at this point is a mighty warrior approaches from the south. Okay? But as he gets closer, he looks at him. He notices that the man is dressed in glorious apparel, but in a peculiar manner, his garments are dyed. They're dyed. And so he, sh he shouts out to the man, calling him to identify himself and the response he gets, it's I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Okay, well, that's not a lot of information. But that's what he gets initially. So he's righteous, he's a mighty savior. 
He's dressed in honorable clothing, but something is unusual. So Isaiah, of all things that he could inquire about, rather than you know, explain righteousness and Savior, he says, what's up with your clothes? Okay, Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the wine press? So the clothing, it's not the normal color that, that uh, he would have expected or he wouldn't have asked. And something about it has perhaps changed up the design of you know, what would have been the, the Middle Eastern clothing of the time. Something about their color disturbs Isaiah. He looks, the man looks like he had just finished treading the wine press. But he, he can tell that it's not. But it looks as if he had. His garments were sprinkled red. And so Isaiah wants to know why. So the response was, I have tread in the wine press alone. It's, it's almost like, well, if you want to call it the wine press, we'll go with that. Okay? And from the peoples, no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments and I have stained all my robes. This righteous savior is emerging from combat and all over him is the blood of his enemies just sprinkled all over him. This is a gruesome scene. No wonder Isaiah was so curious about this, but this is gruesome as all warfare is, but hand-to-hand combat takes everything to another level. It's not like, you know, what we call humane warfare today, you know, where at a great distance a firearm can be discharged and the shooter is unspotted by the kill. That's not the way hand-to-hand combat, that's not what it's like with sword and spear. It brought combatants into immediate contact with each other in this brutal exchange where you you essentially could not escape the blood of your enemy. It was going to be on you or or yours was going to be on on him. It It was ugly. It was barbaric. But that's what they had. And so this individual, in his righteous fury and his anger, he has single handedly slaughtered his enemies and it's left his robes just stained with their blood. Apparently, this is what a righteous savior looks like after he's rescued those that he protects from a relentless and wicked enemy. The savior continues to speak. He says, for the day of vengeance is in my heart and the year of my redeemed has come. Notice how uh, the day of vengeance and the year of the redeemed have, they're in conjunction with one another, right? This vengeance of of his has something to do with his redeemed, right? They've come together. I think it's apparent at this point that, you know, Isaiah is not engaging with just some random warrior, right? Somebody he, he's, I think he's picking it up. Uh, This mysterious person is speaking like the Lord. You know, only the Lord has those who are his redeemed ones, okay? And it's God's vengeance that comes to rescue his people. And when he does, um, it's just not, it's not pretty. Now, Isaiah was, of course, you know, he's seeing this in a, a vision, and it's regarding, you know, judgment, of course, that has occurred or has been wrapped up in the area of Basra. I don't believe that he was battling with the people of Edom. Okay, I think that the battle has ended up there, as we'll talk about in a little bit. But 
this event has no historical context. It didn't take place in the days of Isaiah. Uh, it, didn't, it hasn't taken place following the days of Isaiah, but it's going to take place. Isaiah has seen something of the future, okay? Uh, so we'll, we'll come back to that later. The, the Savior continues. He says, I looked, but there was no one to help. And I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury, it sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. So this is, this is a mighty savior. He, he's engaged in, in single-handed combat with a multitude of peoples. No one has, has, has helped him. And he's subdued all of these enemies in the most brutal fashion, demonstrating his righteous fury for the sake of his redeemed. And he so vanquished his enemies, says he's brought them their strength to the ground. That is uh, like a, uh, it's an allusion to the grave. So he went out, he went into battle, he slaughtered his enemy, and they will never rise to cause problems again. They're just completely, completely annihilated. So let's ask a couple questions here and do our best to answer them. Uh, Who is this person? Who are the redeemed? And when do these events take place? Yeah. Well, John the Apostle uh, happens to pick up on uh, the the exact same language and then provides uh, similar details and then actually expands on them in Revelation 14, 16, and 19. In Revelation 14 the angels uh, pronounce the the execution of God's wrath to protect his redeemed from their enemies who have been pursuing them and persecuting them. So uh, the angels come out and they announce what's going to happen. And the place of God's wrath is compared to a wine press by John's vision. And the person who treads out the wine press is the son of man. Who's the son of man? That is the title that he took for himself uh, in the Gospels, and it comes from Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, we see him coming with the clouds, and he's brought to the Ancient of Days, and to him is given a kingdom, and it is for him to judge. It's for him to judge, okay? Let's, let's read <coughs> some of how John describes this. John says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. So see the white horse? That's why I think Isaiah probably saw him on a horse. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. So like Isaiah 63, this person is righteous. They're combative. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Notice that this individual has blood on his garments, but those who are with him have clean clothes. Remember Isaiah 63, the individual coming from the battle declared that he fought alone, so he would be the only one with blood on him. Everybody else has clean clothes. They're not dyed, okay? Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. 
So he strikes his enemy with, enemies with fear, fury and wrath, just like the one in Isaiah 63. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's a real savior. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. If you've read your Old Testament, you know that this is a typical scene uh, following the battle. The, um, the winning side, uh, they go and recover all their dead. And uh, they leave all the enemy's dead strewn across the landscape, and it becomes a buffet for the birds and the beasts of the field. Uh, you remember that there was an exchange of uh, trash talk between Goliath and David. And Goliath said, I'm going to feed you to the birds of the air, the beasts of the field. And, and David said, correction, <laughs> I'm going to take your head off of you, and I'm going to feed your body to the animals. Yeah. Now, the same event uh, is recorded in Matthew 24, verses 27 through 31. We're going to be there pretty soon on Sunday morning. Um, and then 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 10. And if you've read through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, Hosea, Amos, Obadiah, uh, you've come across this same uh, battle, okay? Same battle. So who is this person? Who are the redeemed? And when do these events take place? The person is clearly Christ. The redeemed, according to Revelation 14, are primarily the believing Jews at the end of the age, in Revelation 14, among the redeemed are the 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, we don't believe that that's it, because these are just men. Um, we believe many more Jews will be saved, but these men have a, a special task for which they were sealed by God. And this event occurs when Jesus returns to rescue his people. All right? The battle described in Isaiah 63 uh, it ends in Basra, but it began someplace else. Anybody know where? Close to a valley, famous one. It's apparently about 180 miles north of Basra in the hills surrounding the valley of Jezreel, okay, which is uh, called in the Hebrew Armageddon, which means the hill of Megiddo. Uh, we gather that from Revelation 14.20 and Revelation 16.16. 16. So if I was to give you the chronology of events without pulling in a thousand other verses, the way that I'm, I visualize and understand this, um, it seems that Jesus returns to the earth just as Antichrist is making his final attempt to annihilate the Jews, who at that time will be fleeing from Jerusalem to take refuge in Basra. Okay? That's my understanding of the text. Jesus will touch down where initially? Mount of Olives, opposite Jerusalem. And then he will make his way to engage in battle in Megiddo. Uh, and how some of these st stuff between uh, Mount of Olives and Megiddo is fuzzy for me so far in the scriptures. Maybe it'll all um, be cleared up as we get closer to Matthew 24. The enemy will pursue the Jews southward with Jesus on the enemy's heels. He will catch them in the desert before 
the walls of Basra, the, the, the fortress, if you will, and there um, he will trample the winepress of the wrath of Almighty God upon his enemies, Revelation 14, 2. Yeah, it says that in 14, 2, that as a result of him treading the winepress, their blood will come to the horse's bridle. Now, instead of this meaning that there will be this, you know, sea of blood from his enemies, it probably means their blood is spattered as high as the bridle of the horse, okay? I, some uh, interpreters, they interpret that extremely literal, and they say that from the, the valley hills and stuff, it, the blood from the animal will flow into the valley and fill up. Um, I, I think that actually he's talking about the spattering, okay? Am I sniveling at you too much? It's this post-cold, well, I know it annoys him. Thanks, Dad. Why do I think that um, it's just spattered that high? As Isaiah 63 says, the enemy's blood was sprinkled on his garments. They weren't soaked like it was submerged. Um, it's always risky to blow your nose in front of people. <laughs> Could you edit that? <laughs> yeah. So his, his garments weren't submerged like in a vat or a pool of blood, but they were sprinkled. So I think that it, it means sprinkling rather than there was a sea of blood in the valley there. So very graphic and gruesome kind of scene. Now, when I <coughs> excuse me, consider the, you know, the righteous wrath of God, it, it is for me the most sobering thing to consider. It, it's not like... Uh, you know, just wrath or, or just anger, but this is the righteous vengeance of God, both at the cross, where God's vengeance was poured out on Christ for our sins, and then this last time when his righteous judgment is poured out on the wicked. It's just, it's just so sobering to me that there's nothing more final than the consummation of, of God's judgment. Okay? There's, there's no return from it. When it's done, it's done. And what remains is final and forever. All things are done uh, when his judgment is complete. Um, there's no changing the results. There's no going back. There's no appeal. There's nothing. Uh, because the righteous God who knows everything, he's the perfect judge, um, he finishes it. And then after that, it's all, it's all done. So following the, this oracle this vision of the Savior, Isaiah then begins to offer a, a doxology, if you will, almost a psalm uh, in, but that, that includes a prayer, and it's reflecting on God's goodness and faithfulness in spite of Israel's rebellion. So it's quite the transition you see from verse 18, I'm, I'm sorry, not verse 18, but from the, that last verse in Isaiah 63, uh, verse 6 to verse 7, he says, from the, the spattering of the enemy's blood to, I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord. It's huge, isn't it? But this is a, a person that is grateful for the Savior coming and, and saving the redeemed because the, 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 the extent of the evil uh, that comes against Israel in the end is at, at its peak. And um, so he says, I'll mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has bestowed on them according to his mercies, according to the multitude of his loving 
kindness. So he's talking about mentioning it. He's talking about praising him for it. It's very interesting. When you, when you study the book of Revelation, to me, one of the most um, kind of surprising things, and I've mentioned this before, is that we have many times where the angels are worshiping God in Revelation. And almost every single time, it's for his righteous wrath. God is to be worshiped for his justice. The angels understood. I think Isaiah understood here. Praising the Lord for it. For he said, <coughs> surely they are my people, children who will not lie. So he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. And he bore them and carried them all the days of old. So God chose Israel. He chose to be their savior, the redeemer, uh, even from ancient times. Um, he was just faithful to them. His heart was invested in them. Uh, this really tender expression here that uh, it says that when the, the people of Israel were afflicted, and I think the context demonstrates that you know, he's looking to the past and he's expecting it in the future, but in the past, their affliction was in Egypt. And he says that when they were afflicted there, he says, I, God was afflicted. He was afflicted with them. Okay? He suffered as he watched them suffer. But as the prophets, always truth tellers, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned against them as an enemy and he fought against them. So God in his faithfulness, he punished Israel for rebellion, a, a, a theme all throughout Isaiah. Then he remembered the days of old. Now he there is a reference to the 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 chosen of God, the elect, that's Israel. Moses and his people saying, where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit within them, who led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the water before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led, who led them through the deep as a horse in the wilderness that they might not stumble. So, as we see throughout you know, the history of Israel, God used judgment to remind Israel of his past faithfulness so they could look back to that, okay? but also of his justice. And every time God does that, he does it with their repentance and their restoration in mind. Right? You've read the book of Judges. It's just this, seems like this never-ending cycle of them uh, going after the Baals, worshiping idols, and uh, the, the idols of the other nations, so God turns them over uh, to be conquered by uh, a foreign nation or one of the Canaanite groups. And then they come to their senses and they cry out to the Lord and the Lord gives them a redeemer and they have a couple years, 40 years sometimes at best. Happens through First and Second Kings. And then whenever they come to their senses and when they will come to their senses in the future, they're going to remember God's faithfulness to Moses and the people that were with him, the faithfulness of God to use Moses to lead them, and they will wonder where God is in their current distress. The question will be this, where is the God of our fathers who led our fathers by the hand, okay, through the sea, through the desert, through the Jordan? He delivered them out of Egypt. Where is he? And so God will use all of that to lead them back to himself, okay? And the text is for his glorious name. So as the scriptures often say, the, the redemption of Israel is not always for their sake, but it's for the preservation of God's glory and his reputation. Israel, and like most people, um, they're not much to save. 
typically. So, but he made promises to them, and keeping those promises upholds his reputation. It proves his faithfulness. Okay? So they'll look to his past faithfulness with the surety if they repent, he will demonstrate his faithfulness again. He says, look down from heaven and see from your habitation, holy and glorious. Where are your zeal and your strength, the yearning of your heart and your mercies toward me? Are they restrained? So as we know from you know, the history of Isaiah, that many of his days were marked by the evil, the rebellion of his people. And he, like future generations, will be wondering, where is God to deal with evil and to restore Israel? Now, the righteous always suffer through the evil of their nation. And they're always expectant, like, now must be the time. I mean, how many uh, evangelical leaders for the last 150 years in America have been saying, Lord, when? Don't you see how bad it's getting? When are you going to fix this problem? Uh, Wasn't it... um, um, Billy Graham that said, if God doesn't judge America, he'll have to apologize to Sodom. Yeah. So evangelical leaders for quite some time have been saying, God, isn't it now? Isn't it now? Where's your zeal? And Isaiah is saying that here. Okay. But God is faithful. He will judge at the proper time, even though Isaiah believes they're ripe for it right then. He says, doubtless you are our father, though Abraham was ignorant of us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer from everlasting is your name. So appealing to the, 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 like just the tender nature of God as, as the Father. Okay, Of course, Abraham, the patriarchs, those were the fathers, but they've moved on. They, don't, they didn't know all of this was going to happen, whatever, but God is their Father. And so he's appealing to that. He's their Redeemer. His commitment to Israel is tied, he says, to to the name of the Lord, his reputation, which endures forever. He says, O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart, so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your inheritance. Now, when we read, uh, like, not Revelation, but Romans chapter 1, we see that when man insists on going a certain direction, what does God have a tendency to do? He gives them over to it, right? And he gives them over to that so that consequences will teach them. Even at the end of that whole uh, large section from Romans chapter one, God says, don't you know it's the goodness of God that leads to repentance? It was his goodness that allowed you to suffer consequences to help wake you up, okay? But it doesn't always happen. God doesn't coerce those people. He doesn't tempt people. But it's man that in his rebellious sin nature, he constantly wants to rebel. God will allow them to do that because he knows how effective the teacher of consequences can be. But he does not let up until there's brokenness and repentance, which always results in crying out to God for help. He says, your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary We've become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. And you notice, at this time, the sanctuary was still standing in Isaiah's day. So he's considering the rebellion of his day, and it looks like he's looking forward to what's on the horizon, okay? You remember, uh, it was Hezekiah, right, that let the Babylonians in to see the, the temple? 
and they got to see the riches and all the kingdom. And Isaiah says, everything you showed them will be theirs and they'll destroy this place. Yeah, so the passage, and I think it anticipates their future rebellion as well, like future from even us now. It led to the destruction of the temple then. It led to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD and it will cause problems uh, in the future. It led to the, their removal from the land. But here it says, your holy people held possession for a little while. And then he mentions the temple. So possession of the city, of Israel, of the temple, the capital, everything Zion that was theirs. Okay? Uh, we know that God had promised the land to them for an everlasting inheritance. Everlasting inheritance. Okay? Uh, they sure did not enjoy it for very long, did they? They didn't. Okay? God had them removed because of the rebellion but he's going to restore and bring them back to the land. But there's a condition for all of that. It's repentance. It's repentance. If you look at Israel today, in light of the Old Testament, they are like a nation that has never been ruled by God. They really are. Most Jews are secular. Okay? Most Jews do not recognize the, the name of the Lord. The land, in spite of what they currently believe, the land belongs to them. But the covenant blessings and promises of God cannot be enjoyed by them until they turn to Christ. People say, well, they're in the land. Are they enjoying all the covenant blessings? They're not. Yeah, and they're not all in the land. Less than half of all Jews are there in the land, but they're not enjoying those covenant blessings. They're successful in many ways, but what they have and what they're experiencing, it's just not the fulfillment of the covenant. Um, I mean, tragically, most recently, what, is, what happened on October 7th, is a demonstration of that. They're not enjoying the promises of the land. Okay? Uh, the war with Hamas and Hezbollah, the, the increase in anti-Semitism. Uh, have you guys been watching what's going on at The Hague? Insane. Insane. Yeah. They're not enjoying it. It's because Israel has not repented. They haven't welcomed Jesus back. They haven't said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But as soon as they do, he will return and he will save them just as the beginning of the chapter says. He'll save them from, with a mighty hand from Satan. Now, the chapter is crazy. But there's something that I, I love about it. Okay? Because in the chronology of events in Revelation, Jesus has squashed the satanic uh, armies um, in, to recover, to rescue Israel. He's making his way back to Jerusalem where he'll sit on the throne of David and so he's returning to Jerusalem to be coronated king. That's what all that's about. Isaiah sees him coming. As soon as he recognizes him, the gate will be opened and it'll be the triumphal entry on steroids. It'll be amazing. And they'll declare him king and he'll rule over the earth. Amen? But judgment comes first. All right, go ahead and stand up. We'll pray. If you have any questions about what we've talked about, I know judgment is a light subject. Father, um, I think that as our culture loses its grip on justice and morality, uh, it's easy for us to lose our grip on what is actually just. And, and, and we know that, that mercy triumphs over judgment, and we want to be a merciful people. But we have to be careful as we do that, that we don't miss what is actually true about morality, what is actually just and right because Lord, we don't want to read your word and think that you're cruel because you're not. Nothing about your judgment is, 
is arbitrary. You don't fly off the handle. Everything is right. You, you judge according to justice every time. And so, Lord, we, we may not even fully understand. I'm certain that we don't. But, Lord, like Isaiah, as he appealed to the character, your character in verse 7, Lord, your, your loving kindness, your goodness, Lord, judgment is a product of your goodness. So, Lord, we praise you for it. We pray that you would conform our minds to it, that we would understand better so that we wouldn't judge you for your perfect judgment. So Lord, help us to understand. And Lord, I, I pray also that in light of just the, the evil that's in the world and sin, that we would realize also that you dealt with all of that justly at Calvary and that people can be redeemed from the judgment to come by receiving the judgment against their sin in Christ through faith. So Lord, help us to see the lostness of man, the trouble that they're in. They will face the God of justice if they're not redeemed by the Savior. So it help us to see people through that lens, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Hey, the weather is going to get real cold. It's going to snow. And people in Washington do 